The United States holds 5% of the world's population, yet 25% of the world's prisoners. What's up with that? Today's episode of the Livewire Politics Podcast is titled, The Incarceration Nation. And welcome back to the podcast. And before we get started, as always, thank you for being here. I know your time is valuable, and I appreciate the fact that you're taking the time to listen to the show. And I hope you find value in it. And please drop me a line at livewirepolitics.org and let me know about content and what you would like to hear. You know, today's episode is going to be interesting. We're going to be, you know, discussing how on earth the United States became known as the incarceration nation. We have now the dubious and notorious distinction of being, you know, the nation with the highest rates of incarceration in the world. And, you know, going back to 1970, uh, we have increased our prison population by nearly 500%. And that is a problem, regardless of where you stand on, you know, being tough on crime or soft on crime. The net result is a problem. And we're going to start by really just identifying, you know, what that looks like. I mean, you know, a nation that was founded on the principle of, you know, individual liberty. And I think the most simplistic definition of liberty is really freedom from unjustified restraint. I'll say that again, freedom from unjustified restraint. But that means that we need to define what is justified and what is not. And we can draw upon, you know, the philosophical framework of John Locke or Rousseau, you know, because it is we the people that really create our government with a set of rules. We have a social contract that we all kind of abide by, and there's that sense of legitimacy. So with every administration, we have to ask, are there legitimate social goals that are being served by, you know, certain putting certain offenders behind bars and having certain policies. For the purposes of this show, we're going to be talking about mandatory minimums and how that impacts our prison population. We'll be going over the cost economically of what it costs this country to house the millions of prisoners that we currently have and what social unintended consequences take place because we're housing so many offenders uh, of a drug-related matter, for example, we'll be discussing the war on drugs and how that impacts families and local economies. So our first topic is going to be mandatory minimums. And back in 2015, then-President Barack Obama visited the El Reno facility in Oklahoma City, the first sitting U.S. president to ever visit a federal penitentiary. And during his visit, he was quoted as saying this. challenges and opportunities that we face with respect to the criminal justice system. Uh, many of you heard me speak uh, on Tuesday in Philadelphia about the fact that uh, the United States accounts for 5% of the world's population. We account for 25% uh, of the world's inmates. And that represents a huge surge since uh, 1980. A primary driver of this mass incarceration uh, phenomenon is uh, our drug laws, our mandatory minimum sentencing around drug laws. And you know, we have to consider whether this is the smartest way for us to 
both control crime and uh, rehabilitate individuals. So let's talk about the two R's, rehabilitation and recidivism. So this phenomenon that President Obama touched on really deals with the war on drugs, mandatory minimums, and our current ballooning of our incarceration rates. It's not violent crimes. If you look at the research over the past even 15 to 20 years, violent crimes have decreased. So let's look at the revolving door within our prison system. So I'm going to cite a study that was conducted by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and they found that specifically with drug offenders, that they are the second highest likely group to reoffend. 76% of all drug users that were released from prison were rearrested within a five-year period. And of that group, half were rearrested within the first year. And I think sometimes the inclination in the corrections department within the criminal justice system is to punish. And punishment is always normally in the form of incarceration. And, you know, we have to think, really ask ourselves, is this the best way to treat nonviolent drug offenders? So maybe an alternative approach would be to look at rehabilitation as the primary focus for nonviolent drug offenders. Why don't we perhaps agree that the most pragmatic way to solve this huge recidivism problem is to look at outpatient therapy? So, you know, someone instead of being thrown into general population would still be accountable. They would be integrated in their communities. They would work. They would be closer to support systems and they would have a much lower rate of regardless of what the approach is something needs to be done because the criminal justice system as it stands needs to have a new strategy to really help nonviolent drug offenders and the current approach of mass incarceration is just not going to be sustainable on so many levels and I think that starts with this pervasive stereotype that drug offenders are just beyond uh, reproach and that somehow they're untreatable. It's just not true. And once there is a general paradigm shift, the initial funding for those programs will be allocated. You know, we need to recognize that there is an issue and, you know, we need to commit time, effort, and resources into evidence-based practices. But we have to get to that level first. And I think that starts with families in stories. You know, this is all great in theory, but there have been so many lives, so many families that have just been completely uprooted uh, because of the war on drugs and because of mandatory minimums. So I just wanted to maybe just share a couple stories that hopefully put a human face to what is really a layered and very controversial topic. You know, stories like Todd Hannigan, who back in 2009 uh, was sentenced to 15 years in prison after he was found trying to kill himself with a couple dozen Vicodin. And, you know, he went to a park uh, with the intention of taking a lethal dose. And a police officer found him and noticed that he had 22 grams of Vicodin on him. And under Florida law, uh, they mandate a 15-year prison sentence if you have uh, anywhere between 14 to 28 grams of um, hydrocodone, which is Vicodin. And even during the hearing, the judge was quoted as saying that he did not believe uh, that this sentence was justified. 
and yet he had no choice because the restraints were already placed on him. 15 years for trying to kill himself. And Todd, according to the article, didn't have any prior uh, drug offenses or any offenses for that matter. Or Talisha Watkins, who was sentenced to 20 years in prison for setting up a single sale of crack cocaine to an undercover cop. And Talisha was given a package and she distributed it to the police officer. And because the package happened to have some crack cocaine included in the cocaine, her sentence was three times more harsh because of that factor. And this single mother of one is now spent the next 20 years of her life in prison because she also had a few other drug offenses in her past. And when we hear sentences, we have to realize that we are removing a human being, not just away from society, but away from family and away from friends. And this is something that needs to be considered, especially when it comes to nonviolent drug offenders. I mean, right now, there are 54 people that have life without parole in our federal penitentiary system for marijuana offenses. I'm going to say that again. There are 54 people that have life without parole for marijuana offenses. And this is during the time where 22 states have legalized marijuana. We have a whole group of inmates that have been forgotten by the recent uh, legislation within the states legalizing marijuana. And this is something that has to be looked at. And revisiting this idea of mandatory minimums and having this one-size-fits-all approach to the law. And this is something that's brought up because under our current Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, you know, he's made it clear that he's rolling back certain policies that are designed against what he calls the pro-drug crowd. And, you know, this is a very serious issue because, you know, objectively, if we want to see, you know, lower rates of incarceration, lower rates of drug abuse, we've got to think about this from outside the box, from a treatment and a medical approach. And look at the reality of what the prison system looks like right now. Who is occupying our prison system? And when it comes to the war on drugs, when Nixon launched this campaign back in 1971, um, you know, we basically allowed peace officers to become soldiers. And at the time, there were only 300,000 inmates on the federal level, and now we're at 2.4 million. And, you know, we've went over some of the statistics earlier, right? But I think it's important to know of those that are in prison uh, of a drug-related manner, you know, who is, who are the big kingpins versus the drug users? Who are the distributors uh, versus those that, you know, have just had a personal habit that has just gone wrong? And I think it's important to know that the vast majority and reference the blog and the notes. Um, and there's a, is an amazing graph that really, really drives this point home. The vast, vast majority of people that are in prison for drug related issues are just users. They have no involvement with cartels. They have no involvement in trafficking to minors. There's no significant criminal history. 
So this idea that, you know, we're maybe just putting in prisoners that, you know, are causing, you know, huge havoc to our society uh, is just, it's not accurate. And the war on drugs have had unintended consequences as a result. That is, it is not just the incarceration, it is not just the laws, it is not just the arrest. It is what happens as a result of those actions that really need to... So here's a clip from Congressman Ron Paul back in 2007 during a PBS debate talking about ending the war on drugs. System designed to protect individual liberty will have no punishments for any group and no uh, no privileges. Today, I think inner city folks uh, and minorities are punished unfairly in the war on drugs. For instance, uh, blacks make up 14% of those who use drugs, yet 36% of those arrested are blacks, and it ends up that 63% of those who finally end up in prison are blacks. This has to change. We don't have to have more courts and more prisons. We need to repeal the whole war on drugs. It isn't working. So what do we do? Do we repeal the entire war on drugs? That is to say, on a federal level, that doesn't mean we decriminalize drugs. We dismantle this massive war on drugs campaign on the federal level. And what about that? If we are promoting individual liberty with personal responsibility, is this war on drugs in harmony with that philosophy? Is this just some libertarian hoopla? Or does this have some real meaning? You know, as mentioned earlier in that clip, some of the disparities that we see within our criminal justice system. And there is an undeniable link between poverty and single-parent households. In fact, nearly 27% of single-parent households live in poverty. And again, this is a general observation. This is not a broad brushstroke for all families. Everyone's different. But if we're going to make policy, we have to look at themes and we have to look at where the research is pointing. And specifically, it was mentioned earlier, the disparities of drug use versus arrest versus incarceration, specifically within the African-American community. Well, that plays a huge toll on families. Right now, 67% of all children in the African-American community are from single-parent families. That also links to poverty. And it wasn't always like this. I quote Thomas Sowell a lot, but his work in the economic field has just been completely groundbreaking. And, you know, he goes on to say that, you know, the black family has survived centuries of slavery and generations of Jim Crow, where most black children grew up in homes with two parents. And he says, in fact, when, you know, blacks were just one generation out of slavery, the census data in that era showed a slightly higher percentage of black adults who had married than white adults. And, you know, his research goes on to say that even as early as 1965, 76% of all black children were born into married families. That is on its way of being completely reversed uh, from 1965 to now. So I think it's important that we meditate on that for just a moment. And 
ask ourselves what policies have been enacted which have negatively impacted certain communities over others. And if that has done society any good, more than harm. And if we say to ourselves as a general consensus that these policies serve no public good or limited public good, then we scrap it. So at the beginning of the show, I was going to go over the costs on you know what it takes to run and maintain this massive prison population. And I kind of decided not to do that. Uh, I think numbers can be a little cold and you don't really paint a full picture on what those economic tolls look like. So I wanted to just go over a high overview of direct versus indirect costs. And, you know, the direct costs are easy. They're, you know, based on, you know, housing, uh, facilities, staffing, food, operations costs. And, you know, that's roughly $80 billion a year, uh, which seems like a lot, but it's really more important to look at the indirect costs. And there's been a few studies that have been done that show that it's over $1 trillion. And, and here's what that number actually looks like. And if you take into account all the social welfare uh, I- impacts that incarceration takes on families, uh, you can see how that number would come about. Um, so this particular study by the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights uh, says that nearly 65% of all families are unable to pay for basic needs like food and housing. And those financial costs are, you know, come in a variety of forms. Um, they interviewed about 1,500 people uh, that have either directly been a federal inmate or they've been a family member of an inmate who has taken them back into their homes. And they found that 80% of that group were denied housing or declared ineligible for housing because of the loved one's conviction history. And, you know, if you look at also, you know, what are the earning potentials for someone coming out of prison? Um, They make anywhere from 10 to 40% less in income compared to someone who has no uh, previous incarceration history. And there are really great private sector companies that, you know, are hiring uh, primarily even, you know, ex-inmates. Dave's Killer Bread, for example, which is an awesome company. They make a great product. And they have this philosophy that, you know, they're going to hire ex-inmates, give them an opportunity to be uh, financially stable. And, you know, they live by that practice. It's just, however, not the case uh, for the majority of, of folks that get out of the prison system. And, you know, again, poverty is linked uh, and it's a perpetual uh, system. And there's a quote from the Ella Baker Center that really I wanted to bold, bold print. And, you know, during the research, I read that poverty in particular perpetuates the cycle of incarceration, while incarceration itself leads to greater poverty. And I think, you know, we're in this weird age now where, you know, everyone wants to be tough on crime And while that might fit nicely on a bumper sticker, uh, it sure really doesn't take into consideration, you know, the impact that, you know, mandatory minimums and hardline policies really, you know, take on families. And, you know, I think we're all adult enough to say, you know, nobody wants to be soft on crime, uh, but we have to have a balance and we have to be honest with how we look at 
our criminal justice system, more in particular are the war on drugs. You know, this episode was primarily gauged towards that because, you know, the research indicates that the reason why our prison population has ballooned to what it is, is directly related to the war on drugs and our federal policies, our mandatory minimums. All of that really has changed the trajectory of our quote unquote free society. We've got to challenge that, ask better questions, put forth better solutions. And we can only do that through being honest with the research, honest with uh, our findings and decide that we're going to shift this paradigm. So we're going to end today's podcast with uh, a lyric from Bob Dylan. And this is from a song called Ballad of Donald White. Oh, the inmates and the prisoners, I found they were my kind. And it was there inside the bars, I found my peace of mind. But the jails, they were too crowded, institutions overflowed. So they turned me loose to walk upon life's hurried, tangled road. For the Livewire Politics Podcast, my name is David Stanky.